Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the latest teaching class in the Thames Valley Church of Christ teaching series on the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're in Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at what the headlines in my NIV say, that which defiles, Jesus honours a Syrophoenician woman's faith, and Jesus heals a deaf and mute man. Is there a connection between these three scenes in Mark chapter 7? Well, spoiler alert, there's always a connection. And yes, I think we will see some connections here as we go through this today. So I hope you find this helpful. Let's dive straight in. This first scene in Mark chapter 7, we have the Pharisees, some of the teachers of the law. They've come from Jerusalem, from headquarters, to gather around Jesus. And they see, what do they see? Some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. Doesn't sound good. What does that mean? That they are unwashed. The significance of this? The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the, keyword tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. They observe many other traditions, washing of cups, pitchers, kettles. Pharisees, teachers of the law, ask Jesus, why are your disciples not keeping to this tradition and eating with defiled hands? And Jesus accuses them of hypocrisy, quoting Isaiah. He was right when he prophesied about you. Not that, they th not that the Pharisees thought that Isaiah was prophesying about them, but Jesus sees it this way. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they're far from me. They worship me in vain. Teachings are taught. They're merely human rules. Letting go, you have let go of the commands of God, holding on to human traditions. And then he goes on to give them a particular example of something called Corban, where, which I'll, I'll explain more in a moment. And then he calls the crowd over and says, listen to this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After the crowd have gone, uh, he goes into the house. Disciples ask him about it. They don't understand. He says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? It doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body, literally into the toilet. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of a person's heart, that's where evil thoughts come from. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. He's not saying that's the only things, but he's giving a representative list of the sorts of things that defile somebody. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus has created enough of a stir in the provinces for the big wigs in Jerusalem to be concerned and send a dele delegation to see what on earth is going on. And what is this big deal about washing of hands? See, only priests in this culture this time were required to wash their hands. The Pharisees, as usual, were taking matters to an extent that was never demanded by God. The question really here is not one of faith, but of tradition that was, in fact, not part of the law but a, what you might call a fence around the law. It may have been implemented for good purposes, but it's ended up becoming something more significant than the law itself. And we, as followers of Jesus, often find ourselves questioned about the way things are done rather than about the faith that prompts those actions. If it happened to the first disciples, it will happen to us too. Uh, Jesus doesn't feel bound to answer that question immediately. He does later in the chapter, but he goes for the deeper issue. 
Jesus and his disciples are urgently and zealously telling the masses about the kingdom of heaven, the arrival, the imminent arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And in so doing, they are constantly in touch with unclean people who are making them ritually impure, as well as eating all kinds of food without asking questions or being bothered about the ritual aspect of such things. And the Pharisees here, they're completely missing the point. And the implication is that the Pharisees are more concerned with the outward appearance than the heart. I think we see that quite clearly in what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus does say, tell them that they are the hypocrites that Isaiah was talking about in, uh, in his prophecy. So Jesus here interprets the Old Testament to apply to this modern setting, modern for them, of how the Old Testament has been interpreted and thus proving the Pharisees wrong. He gives an example of Corbin to back up what he's saying. He's not attacking the tradition as, as such, but where it clashes with God's commands. And you might want to look up some background here in Exodus 20, paralleling Deuteronomy 5, and Exodus 21, paralleling Leviticus 20. Larry Hurtado, in his commentary, says this, If a son made a dedicatory vow, ancient scribal law of the Jews stated that the vow could not be cancelled, even to support one's parents with one's possessions. Corbin here is a Hebrew word used to describe people or objects exclusively dedicated to God. So Jesus is referring to a tradition that says that if someone dedicates his possessions to God, then that places a ban on their use by others. If that leads to not being able to support one's parents, then, well, people might say, well, too bad, I've dedicated it to God. But that then breaks an Old Testament command to look after your parents. But the Pharisees, it appears in this context, would not then break the tradition for the sake of the command. They'd say, well, you promised it to God. But yet the Old Testament command is, who cares about that if you're breaking the command to look after your parents? So all of this, then he, he goes back to talk about how Really, it's from within. That's where sin comes from. That's what defiles us. So is Jesus implying that people are pure until sin arises from within? See, the Pharisees had the opposite view. For them, purity was compromised by contact with something external. Now, although in this situation, the disciples don't get it, they have to ask him what it all was about, and they get a little bit of a rebuke. Are you so dull? At least they asked the question. <laughs> let's, let's give them credit for that. And that's how we learn. Never stop asking questions, even the ones you think are stupid, right? It's vital to the Christian life that we keep asking questions until we properly understand. Now, whilst the uh, implication of Jesus' teaching was just uh, what Mark mentions here, that all foods are clean, it is the secondary point that is more significant. The Pharisees had a system that fundamentally would not deal with the problem of sin. Knowing sin's location is primary to dealing with it. The problem is not external, but internal. And that's something which many religions, including some parts of Christendom historically, have failed to understand. Some Old Testament prophets mention the same things. If you want to look that up, it's Amos 5 and Isaiah chapter 1 as an example. And even other rabbinical teaching of the day made the same points. Jesus is not unique in his attitude to ritual observance, but his teaching was intended to help his critics understand the significance of the deeper theme of the priority of proclamation of the kingdom. That trumps all these other traditions. The heart is what matters. Not saying that that equates to emotions or sincerity, 
Greek and Roman thought of the day was that the heart was the seat of the spiritual and intellectual processes, including the will. So he's talking about that deeper part of us. Ultimately, the inner person is more important than the outer person. So this body of teaching prepares us for the next incident, the honoring of a Syrophoenician woman's faith. Let's go on to look at that next. So Jesus moves on and he goes to Tyre, a Gentile area, where he is looking for some peace and quiet, I think. Perhaps he needs some special devotional time with God. Perhaps he's going to be doing some special teaching with his disciples, though they're not mentioned. It's assumed they're with him, but perhaps they weren't. But we think they were. What's going on? He cannot get this peace and quiet. He is uh, confronted by this woman who begs for her daughter's well-being. And of course, that reminds us of Jairus not so long ago. And she is, well, she's got the problem in that she is unclean, right? That's connecting us with the earlier part of Mark chapter 7. Firstly, she's a woman and rabbis, men in general, but rabbis in particular didn't talk to women. Secondly, she's a Gentile in this area and Jews don't talk to Gentiles. And thirdly, she has a demon-possessed daughter. And that's, again, something you want to stay well clear of that kind of person if you want to stay pure and clean in the eyes of God. So the traditions would say. But here is Jesus with a, an unclean person in an unclean place of an unclean um, uh, uh, cultural origins uh, with an unclean daughter in the background of the story here, what is going on? We're seeing that Jesus is prioritizing the expansion of and the declaration of and, and the demonstration of the kingdom above these traditions and the old ways of thinking. Now, the woman has an interesting time with him, uh, doesn't she, where she begs Jesus to help. And he says this rather strange thing. Let the children eat all they want. Who's he talking about? Well, Israel, uh, clearly, at that point. Let them be filled. Let them be filled up. Let, they, let them be given all that it is that God wants to give them and they need to receive from God. And, of course, at this point, is coming through him. So let me finish my work, I think is what he's saying. It's not right to take the children's bread toss it to the dogs doesn't mean the dogs can't get anything ever and it, there's been a lot of pen and ink and uh, typing going on online about what the dogs are and what that means and how how disgraceful it might be that he would say this or what he might actually mean by it and I I don't think it's worth that much attention I think the point is that he's saying I have a priority and you're not in that priority right now and then the woman is given her opportunity. And there is some speculation that this is, I think N.T. Wright called this banter, that Jesus is bantering with her in a way that expecting a response, hoping for some kind of response. And she gives him an interesting response because she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, I think what she's saying is, you don't have to mess around with your mission to Israel from God. Uh, I don't have to get in the way of that. I'm not going to interrupt you with that. I just need a crumb. That's all I need. I don't need you to feed me a banquet, three-course meal. And I don't want to distract you from what God has called you to do. That's okay. And we see a tremendously humble faith in her here. I just need a crumb. I'll be satisfied with a crumb. A crumb from you is going to be enough to heal my daughter. That's faith, isn't it? It reminds us of the mustard seed. All you need is the mustard seed faith. Just a crumb is enough. Sometimes we think we need enormous faith for something. And too often we have this idea that 
we want some kind of need some kind of astonishingly huge faith when all we need is the mustard seed or perhaps even just the crumb the crumb of faith you think you have crumbling faith or crummy faith no you just need a crumb of faith and you can imagine if the disciples were in the background here they'd be nodding they'd be nodding to what jesus said yeah don't give her anything and then she says this and jesus says for such a reply you may go the demon has left your daughter beautiful wonderful she calls him lord it's more than just sir she just wants a crumb want humility want faith she's happy to be under the table just before we leave this story, I'd like to take us over to Acts chapter 21. We find there that Paul is on one of his journeys, and it says that after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, and we landed where? In Tyre, where the ship unloaded its cargo. And what did he do in Tyre? All these many years later, we sought out the disciples there. There was a church in Tyre now. And they stayed with them for seven days. And as they left, it says that they all went with them as they left. The wives, children, all the disciples accompanying them out of the city. And on the beach, they knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship. They returned home. Where? To Tyre. Now, we don't know whether this woman in Mark 7 was part of that church, whether she perhaps even founded the church or told so many people about Jesus that when the, when the people who knew of the resurrection appeared in Tyre that oh they put two and two together and perhaps she sowed the seeds we don't know for sure it'd be one of those things we'd like to ask God and we'll all find out in the next life but I do wonder whether something happened there that that prepared the ground for the gospel and who knows how strange encounters with Jesus prepare the way for us you and I have stories of that don't we in the way that God prepared us uh, to be in the right place spiritually at the right time to become Christians. So carry on sowing those seeds, even in the strange areas, areas where there is no church right now. When you travel on holiday, when you go shopping somewhere different, who knows how your conduct around somebody there might prepare the ground for not only their salvation, but maybe the salvation of many others. Finally, let's go on to our last story back in chapter 7, the healing of the deaf and mute man. So he leaves Tyre and goes through Sidon, Sea of Galilee, into the region of the Decapolis. We've been here before. And so people bring him a man who is deaf, could hardly talk. They begged Jesus to place his hand on them. We have this recurring theme of friends bringing people to Jesus. He takes him aside, away from the crowd. We see that more than once in this gospel. He puts his fingers into the man's ears. He spat, which is a bit strange to our understanding, and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh. This is a really, you know, one of those sighs that come from deep inside. It's it's one of those heavy sighs. He looks up to heaven and says, Apapatha, meaning be opened. The man's ears are opened. His tongue is loosed. He began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anybody. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Ah, another wonderful story of the power and compassion of Jesus. Now, this healing, interestingly, is only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke for some reason. And the Greek expression translated, he could hardly talk, is a, itself a Greek um, a translation of the Old Testament passage in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. And you might like to, for a personal Bible study, 
go to Isaiah 35 and see how many parallels and what insight that passage can shed on not just this incident, but Mark chapter 7 in general. So have a look at that for your own personal Bible study. The man needed healing, but his friends were the ones who brought him. And let's face it, we all need friends at times, don't we? And we've all benefited from friends who brought us to Christ and have helped us to stay with Christ. So let's make sure we're praying and remembering to be grateful to God for our friends. He spits and touches the man's tongue. And in that context, there was a thought at the time that perhaps holy men, the spit of holy men was, was had healing properties. So perhaps Jesus does this not because the spit is necessary. I mean, he could heal with a touch or he could heal even in absentia, couldn't he? Just by saying the words. Uh, we've seen that earlier in Mark chapter 7. But perhaps he's what he's saying to the man is, trust me, I can do this. I am one of those who has this kind of power. I'm going to look after you. And this deep sigh. So he's, by looking up to heaven, he's saying, this is God's power. It's not just mine. I'm not some magic man. It's God's work here that's going on. And it seems to me there are parallels with Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God sees all that he has made. And it was not just good, right? It was very good. And this is what they seem to be seeing in Jesus. He's done everything well. Everything he does is good. Everything he touches turns to gold. And I believe Mark is showing us some kind of parallel here with the goodness of God shown us through Jesus in, in recreating the world in the way that God has always had always intended it to be. Its goodness is bring, being brought to fulfillment or, or being repaired and, and, and refreshed and, and made new. And this is what's happened to you and me, at least in part now. And through us, this is what happens in the world. As marriages are healed, as families are healed, as people are healed in some way or other by the power of the Spirit in them, as we help them with that, then we show the world what the what God always intended the world to be like. And then we attract people to this outpost of the kingdom right now. That's part of what we're doing here. So to wrap up with this chapter, a few thoughts for us. And whatever you want to discuss in your groups, is is fine. But here are some ideas you might want to think about. Firstly, a healthy Christian life requires us to be careful in separating the explicit commands from God from the personal application of those commands. When you and I apply the Bible, we need to and make it specific and personal. But we need to be careful that the way that we apply it doesn't become the way everybody else must apply it. And that we don't allow those personal applications to become traditions that cannot then be broken for the benefit of actually obeying a command of God. Tradition in itself is not bad, but when it contradicts God's teachings, we must be that the tradition must be rejected, whether that's on a personal level or a corporate level for a small group or a location or a church. You and I are clean in the eyes of God because we've had a transformational encounter with Jesus Christ, which has led us to gladly and willingly obey him, to surrender, to walk as a disciple. It is not healthy for a disciple to sense that it is a good thing to walk around with guilt. Yes, I'm no good. Yes, I'm a worm. Yes, I'm unworthy. It's not a helpful way to think generally most of the time. When we know we are in some significant sin, then we need to bear that burden enough to bring us back to repentance. But a Christian is meant to be somebody filled with the joy of the Spirit. And you and I have work to do to develop the maturity of understanding and relationship with God, which will help us to live in a state of joy most of the time.
And finally, we see here the function of these friends of the man who got his healing. It is a privilege and a joy to lead people to a transformational encounter with Jesus. Let's never forget that. And let's never stop reaching out to our friends, doing our best to persuade them to come and meet our amazing Jesus. Well, I hope you found something useful from this chapter and I hope you find some value in it in discussing it uh, in your groups. If you have any questions, do drop me a line, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. This coming Sunday after this class, it will be the next chapter, chapter eight, which will be the Sunday sermons. And then chapter nine will be the subject of next week's teaching class. So until the next time, I leave you with this thought. Let's reflect and be grateful that Jesus has done everything well. Take care and God bless.